0: Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to To Hell and Back, the podcast where we explore the tender spots of hope and fear, frustration, joy, profound devastation, all the spots in between. I am that woman. Nicole, you're here with me, Charlie and Natalia Garcia. Welcome.
1: Yeah, I'm that man. And uh, and since... and a mm-hmm. welcome to uh, Natalia. Also. Thank you
2: so much for having me. Glad to be back again, again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think maybe uh, were you going to say something about what? Well, happened?
0: I was. Well, well I wasn't going to say something about what happened yet. Um, but this is this is an extra special, almost bonus episode for us because um, we had an incredible conversation with Natalia uh, a couple of weeks ago, and. Uh, it vanished in the in the the Zoom ether. Um, maybe Charlie can say something about that. But I was going to say something about Natalia. But you know, go ahead, Charlie. Talk about.
1: Um... Uh, there's not much to say because I basically screwed up, and uh, because uh, I didn't hit record. And I do Zoom. I've been zooming Zoom for years with meetings, and it's the first. I don't know what happened. I think a lot was going on at the beginning. Anyway, I didn't hit record, and so we had this great conversation which turns out that it's mainly a rehearsal because it didn't get recorded.
0: And it's always better the second time around. Yeah, no, well, I'll just say quickly, what I took away from that really, really wonderful conversation um, was that, you know, it's easy to see DBT skills, um, at least it is for me, as as concepts, as just kind of abstractions that you can think a lot about, but, um, and get conceptually, But you know, really to implement them, it's it's not so different than like a hammer and a nail. They're practical tools that you have to really put to work and make use of. And I think Natalia is a master maestro craftsperson um, in terms of really applying these tools, understanding them, making beautiful things from them in the most difficult circumstances. I would invite all of you to really listen to the way she wields these tools, Um, just extraordinary precision and care and gentleness. So yeah, really enjoy everyone.
2: And welcome to Talia again. Thank you so much. I was gonna say, Charlie, you are completely forgiven for the error. We all make mistakes. And frankly, I think we all just wanted another excuse to talk for an hour. So I'm very, very <laughs> pleased to be here. Totally.
1: <laughs> Yay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. so I thought maybe, can we just get going into just things that we maybe picked up last time? Were you? No, I
0: was gonna say, yes, yes. You were no, I say, mean, I, you, please.
1: Yeah, so if we can get going with just whatever's come up since last time and also things that we intended to talk about last time and Natalia so I wonder what comes up for you thinking about uh, where we left off what we talked about and what's happened since then
2: yeah so I mean I think one of the main themes that we talked about last time was this idea that you know grief is like a hole in my heart that I don't really want to paper over, nor do I think I could paper over or would if I could, Um, but really thinking about recovery from loss or trauma as, you know, meaning making. Um, How can we make sense of this so that we can move forward with our lives? How can we learn from this experience, apply um, skills to this experience and and learn to love life again after this experience? Um, So often I've referred to that as like, you know, the beautiful things that have grown um, around the edges of that hole in my heart. Um, I want to be clear that I haven't always thought about it this way. When Jackson died, I was just like, my life is over. This is not something I'm ever going to be able to, you know, make something come out of. Um, so just to be really clear, we're five years out from this and, and this is how I've come to think about it. Um, and the kinds of things that I would say have kind of grown, um, out of this tragedy, you know, the things that the flowers that have grown around the edges of this hole would be, uh, a number of things one is like this just profound respect for um for life and the time we have while we're here um you know i think a lot of people sort of assume they're going to be here until their you know end of their life you know in their 80s 90s 100 years old and it became very clear to me that none of that is a guarantee none of that is a given and maybe other people kind of are, walk around with more awareness of that than i did but it really became clear to me um, have a huge, profound respect for life and time. And that's helped us restructure our lives in accordance with our values. Um, You know, we've we've shifted what we do for work in some ways, shifted um, our priorities, um, you know, how much time we have, you know, for our family. And we've seen those impacts even in the people in our community who talk to us about like, gosh, ever since this happened, I've made this big decision or I've made this big shift because I understand now that this is all very very precious. Um, so that's that's you know a, a perspective, right? That that has shifted and it's gone and lended to like a really extensive support network which can be hard to do. I think grief and, and loss makes you retreat. Um, but in some ways, although it did do that initially we have found ways to kind of actually grow our support network um, in ways that have been really, really special. Um, I didn't know a lot of people who had been through really profound grief until it happened to me. And now I have to say some of my closest friends are people that I never would have known if this hadn't happened. Um, I've got a lot of families that I'm close with who have lost children or had profound losses. They're my grief people, my grief community. And, um, you know, it's obviously I would trade all of these things that I got back to have my son again. But given that we're five years out, it's easier to see what grows around the edges of that. Um, whether it be people, relationships, life perspectives, just deep connections with people that we otherwise otherwise wouldn't have. I went on a, on a tour when we went to visit my brother-in-law and my, and my sister-in-law. Um, we went to visit them in Amsterdam and then we went to Bruges and they had a, a, a tour guide, um, who at the beginning asked us about like, Oh, do you have kids? This was like months or maybe a year after Jackson died and, I don't know why, but I actually told him the truth. And I told him that Jackson had died and turns out that as a young boy, his younger brother had died. Um, and we had this amazing connection with a tour guide on the other side of the world. And then we ended up staying in connection with him. I mean, things like that, that otherwise don't happen if you don't kind of open up about your experiences. And I think there are beautiful things that have grown out of it. So that's sort of in a nutshell, some of the Hmm. the flowers that grow around the edges of the hole.
0: As, as time has passed, um, and you've you know, been raising now two young boys, how has your relationship with, with grief um, and your experience of grief changed and evolved over time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think initially, um, it's like I said earlier, it was my life is over. You know, I, I remember that thought coming into my head, like my life is over now. Um, and time was like this really both. And it was something that I wanted more time under my belt. Um, so that I could move away from the acuteness of the loss because of that, you know, idea that time heals. And I just like, it was so excruciating to be so close to the loss initially. And I just wanted there to be more weeks and months under my belt, but also any added time took me away from my last moments that I had with Jackson. So I had this really strange relationship with time. And what I've noticed now that I'm five years out, is that initially I was so acutely aware of time, you know, it was this thing where I could tell you exactly how many days, you know, it had been since Jackson died. I could, you know, it could be like, you know, 64 days and I could still give you that number. Right. Um, and, and, and the milestones, we call these like the grief milestones, but like when Jackson had been gone longer than he was alive, I knew what that day was. Um, and when, Owen eventually came into our lives, our second child, and he became two years old, 10 days, two years and 10 days old, which is how old Jackson was when he died. I was very aware of that milestone. Like now, Owen had leapfrogged his brother and was kind of in some ways the oldest child. So, time, you're so acutely aware of it. And then time passes even more and you become less acutely aware of it. And then there might be judgments about that, right? So, um, you know, September just recently now last month was when Jackson um, would have turned seven. And as we were approaching September, somebody actually asked me, oh, how old would Jackson be now? And my first response was I was gonna say five. And then I was like, that's not right. And then I was gonna say six. And then I just, I realized I hesitated, I like pause and I had to do math in my head, what we call grief math. Um, and then it was just like, what's wrong with me that I don't know how old he would be turning that he would be seven, that should be so clear to me. Uh, but you know, and then I reminded myself of all the reasons why that's not clear to me, right? He should in theory, right, be seven if he was still alive but I never got to send him to kindergarten. I never taught him to ride a bike, I never, Filled out all those forms, putting his date of birth repeatedly. I didn't teach him to tie his shoes. So, why should I track that he's seven without doing a little bit of math? You know, it also makes perfect sense. Um, so, those are some of the ways in which time has shifted for me.
1: Do you, do you, do you, add, does it ever just cross your mind before you have a chance to think about it that you say, oh, yeah, I I did teach him to ride a bike? I, I taught him to swim and I taught, taught him to tie his shoes. Uh, and just thinking of all the people who think they were at Woodstock, for instance, you know, it's like the way time can actually be this playground and, right. and the, the memory can, and do you ever think that, or or is it kind of like rock solid? No, I never did that stuff. It's
2: really them. an interesting question. My first reaction to your question is no, but then I thought about it a little bit more and something I have noticed. So Owen is now three and a half. He's, he's really almost four. He'll be four in January. And when I look at Owen and hear him talk and we have conversations and we play together to me, somehow he's still kind of Jackson's age, even though he's actually almost double his age. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back to a video and I'll watch Jackson as a two-year-old. Cause in my mind, he was like fully verbal and like right. totally doing all these things. And then I watch a video and he's really like a baby. I mean, not a baby. He's a toddler, mm-hmm. but he's a much younger toddler in his final days. When I look back at those videos, then my brain sort of, mm-hmm remembers him as so Mm. in some ways I think my brain is still like Jackson's the oldest and you know Owen is is developmentally so much more far advanced than Jackson was and it was surprising to me to notice that so Mm. in essence a little yeah
1: yeah because I was just thinking it's kind of like when um and I've had this happen with with the person that I lost a friend of mine that, that Cindy that she died at age 49 but I think of her as, oh, yeah, she became 50 and she became 55. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain way in which she has progressed with me. Mm-hmm. And it, it's one of the ways that I haven't left her behind because, yes, mm-hmm. now when we con- converse with each other, let's say in my mind, uh, we're, we're actually two. And then she says to me, yeah, Charlie, I'm 49 years old. I mean, I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I do, no, I don't know what the Me Too movement is. <laughs> uh, I don't donald yeah. trump who's that i mean yeah. and stuff like yeah. that think, oh my god it's right? like right 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 yeah. right right the, the mind does crazy things of keeping mm. somebody up with you
2: i i yeah wow absolutely and I mean for me what that evokes this idea of you know in the in the grief literature it's referred to as continuing bonds but oh. it sounds like you charlie have a real strong sense of continuing bonds um with Cindy and and in, in some ways that makes it so that it's like, wow, she doesn't even know we've been through a pandemic. That's so wild. Right? That's right. Um, yeah. And, and for me, like my, my primary way of like continuing bonds with Jackson is through our kindness project. I know I've talked about that a little bit on this podcast before, but essentially it's this, um, project that we've invited people to participate in where mm-hmm. all of us are spreading kindness in honor of Jackson kind of like along with him. So sometimes the way I think about it is like, Oh, Jackson bought people coffee today, or Jackson did this thing today, right? He's not doing these things, but he's along with us spreading kindness um, in ways that are really profound and meaningful. And it's strange to me, actually, even though he was only two that he doesn't know about the kindness project. Cause he, he is the kindness project and we've been doing this after he died. Right. That's right. Um, But, but that has been, yeah, a beautiful way of continuing bonds for us. Mm. So we
0: talked a little bit about this towards the end, I think, of the last conversation we had, but um, the last recorded conversation Mm -hmm. we had, Um, but, you know, you, you do seem so expert in your use and application of of these skills, Uh, you know, it seems like you have these superpowers in some ways, but, you know, you are human. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about ways in which it maybe wasn't always so easy. Um, I know that that might feel a little bit vulnerable, but if you're willing to share, you know, particularly with regards to to getting to know your wise mind, um, you know, you just did a a really beautiful—you give a beautiful example of just self-validation with regards to, you know, like how you talk to yourself about missing Owen's birthday. How did you? How did? How did you cultivate that capacity? And what was it like when it maybe was a little shakier?
2: Yeah. So yeah. Thank you for asking that because I'm obviously, like I said, five years out. So a lot has changed, you know, and in the immediate aftermath. And when I say immediate, right, I'm not just talking days, but like weeks, months, maybe even years. Um, it was harder, um, to, uh, do some of the things that I'm talking about. So just, for anyone listening, you know, like these, these things are hard and, and, and I did not kind of think to do a lot of these things overnight. Um, Some of the early examples that I would be happy to share about how this was hard for me, like going back to the kindness project. So there, we got this idea. We didn't come up with this idea. We got this idea from a book called Bearing the Unbearable by Joanne Cassiatore. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but um, she is somebody who is a, um, she wears three hats. She's a bereaved mother. She experienced a late term stillbirth. Um, She is a Zen priest. And she is a psychologist. Um, So really interesting perspective from her. And this was a really profound book that towards the end of the book had a chapter on the kindness project as a way of kind of making meaning and moving forward. And um, my husband and I, Brian, we read this book at the same time, uh, more or less after Jackson died, except he's a much faster reader than I am. (laughs) So he got to this chapter first. He was really moved by it and told me about it. And because I hadn't gotten to that point in the book yet and I wasn't really ready to hear about it, my response to him immediately was I completely shut him down and I was just like, screw that idea. Like, I am not going to allow anyone to make light or make positive out of what I'm going through right now. Like this is not gonna be a feel good story. This is this is just plain tragedy. And I, I can't tolerate the idea of someone finding a silver lining or, or, or somebody making something, you know, growing roses around the edges of the hole. Like I am not ready for that idea. Eventually, obviously I changed my mind but I got to that point in the book. She explained it so beautifully and in a way that's just so validating of, of all the pieces of grief. And, and really um, I, I then came around to it. Um, so then I was like, Hey, Brian, I have an idea. No, I'm just kidding. It was his idea. (laughs) Um, but then we, we kind of opened up to the idea of the kindness project. And this has been, like I said, one of the most meaningful things that we've done to help us Mm -hmm. through this. And it just, it was not obvious to me right away that this was going to be, um, helpful to me. And another example that I just want to share like early grief versus later on is I, initially, I mean, going back to this idea of a void and approach that we've talked a whole lot about yeah. already. Um, I used to hide from children. Um, so mm. that sounds strange, but so Jackson died September 20th and shortly after was like Halloween, actually coming around to Halloween now next, next week. And I just like hid in my basement and we put a sign on the door. That's like, not, you are not celebrating, like, don't come knocking at my door. Like I, I couldn't tolerate to see living children. It was so painful for me. Um, and I, the most uncomfortable part of it was I felt angry Mm. and I brought this up to my therapist at the time, my grief counselor. And I was like, this is really hard to admit out loud, but like, it makes me angry to see living children and smiling and bouncing, you know, holding their parents' hands down the street. Like I, that, that is so makes me so angry. And what she helped normalize for me is I didn't wish other children were dead. I just didn't want to be alone in my experience. And I didn't have a way of understanding my experience. And so it felt really unfair. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, eventually, right. It's five years now. I don't hide from children anymore. You know, I used to grab food and eat it in the car because there was like a two-year-old in the restaurant. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Eventually I didn't want to keep eating in my car. So I learned to do things to, (laughs) to be able to eat in a restaurant and, and do the normal activities. And now I see children all the time and it is very different. So kind of in answer to your question, it hasn't always been this easy. And I think it is a journey and for everybody that timeline looks different and the goals look different and the resources look different. And this is just my story. Um, but Five years later is very different than five weeks later for sure. Of
0: course. No, thank you. With an emotion like anger, mm-hmm. you know, I can imagine that that's well, you tell me, but really challenging when you're when you're also experiencing so much grief. And um do you remember at all how you processed that or what you did with that? Like what was that like in the moment to, yeah. to the best of your
2: recollection? It was one of my more difficult emotions. I felt a lot more comfortable with sadness. I even felt more comfortable with guilt, to be honest. Um, Even though that didn't fit the facts, I had not done anything to transgress my values Mm -hmm. or cause this to happen. But I knew more what to do with that. Um, Anger was a very uncomfortable one for me. Um, And I felt much more private about it. And, you know, I'm trying to think whether skillful or not, some things that I did to cope with anger. I remember on a couple of occasions, finding a very private place, like a car, like a parked car, not nearby other people or neighbors and just screaming. Um, And that being really like therapeutic for me, Um, you know, uh, just letting that anger out because Anger made sense. And you know, my goals of raising my child were blocked. Um, and it it was okay to feel angry about that. So sometimes I did things like that because I didn't want someone to feel alarmed. Natalia's <laughs> screaming, you know, but I would go somewhere private and just let out a good scream and then usually yeah. followed by a good cry. And that yeah. helped me in addition to finding softer ways. To be like with the kindness project, I mm-hmm. think that's in some ways a little bit of also opposite action to anger. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, and but though the anger you're talking about sounds, I may have missed this, but sounds like it, it wasn't anger at any particular person. Mm-mm. It wasn't mm-hmm. like a, a object directed no. that way. It was more anger at the universe or anger, exactly. anger at fate. And, mm-hmm. and if, if you were a religious person, angry that God could have allowed this to happen, that sort of right. anger, right? Yeah. So Kind of a different kind of anger than if you had anger directed at yeah. people who were walking their two-year-olds to your house to exactly. trick or treat. Exactly, yeah.
2: yeah. exactly. It was anger at the universe for me, and that's yeah. why yelling it out into the void made sense. Yeah. Um, and then, just again, to the to the extent that anger, you know, was feeling more than I could bear, or like not effective for me, like you know, the opposite opposite action to anger mm-hmm. to the universe, which is to spread kindness in the universe. Yeah,
1: right.
0: That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, uh. A little bit of both. What extent were you able to kind of check the facts and kind of connect with, I don't know, cause and effect when you're having all of those strong emotions flood through you um, and maybe even in to, you know, the birth of your children, your, your next is after Jackson you know, how in the moment able were you to kind of discern what feeling is coming from what situation and how did that get more clear over time?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Check the facts is the backbone of how I've become a parent again. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so for me, you know, we could talk about any number of emotions here that are involved in grief or even just in parenthood, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, um, the main one was fear. There was a lot of fear that this could happen again or because I became awake to this thing we talked about earlier, that life is precious and not a Uh time is not guaranteed that something else could happen too. Right. So there was, there was fear, a lot of fear Uh in deciding to have children again. And, you know, this, this humbling lesson, right. That children don't always live. Right. So the main thing I've had to do in approaching parenthood again, is check the facts to, to this fear. And in a way, what I call, like, I need to needed to right-size my fear. Mm. Um, And when I say right-size my fear, I mean really understand, okay, what is the likelihood that this will happen again? Because the feeling is so strong, that sort of emotional reasoning is like, this this will happen again. When in reality, SUDC is something like one in 100,000. And they've actually looked at the families who are in right now the SUDC family, like registry. Um, I think there's maybe, I don't want to misspeak, but I want to say maybe close to 500 families right now in this, in this organization. And none of them, not one of them has experienced SUDC twice in their family. And most of the children who have died of SUDC either had a previously living sibling, or the family went on to have more children. So reasonably most of these kids would have siblings and it has not happened twice to a single family. So that was a statistic that I needed to literally tattoo to my brain um, (laughs) in order to even think about doing this again, to right-size that fear while simultaneously tolerating the uncertainty that this could happen again. It was not a 0% chance. so. That that's been at the crux of parenting for me, having yeah. to do that.
1: Nice, wow. Natalia. I'm, I want to um, I want to make an observation about and and about the last conversation we had, mm-hmm. the one that was recorded. Uh, so some, if somebody wants to, they <laughs> can go back and hear this. Uh, and because and, and then ask you to further comment on it, or maybe also Nicole. I've given a lot of thought to this. I've given a lot of thought to, um, from the larger perspective of how grief can go, especially such catastrophic event, um, and how it turned out for you, for you and your husband, for you and your family that came to be, for you and your community. It's just... Um, I just wanted to think of how did it go, uh, from a certain point of view, I realized subject to disagreement or subject to change, depending on what happens tomorrow, how did things go so well from a grieving point of view, as painful as grieving is? And as I went through and listened to the last uh, podcast, I realized that there were so many dialectical challenges that you brought up one after another, you could almost say the whole podcast was about one dialectical challenge after another that you had to navigate. It's sort of like you were on a boat going through water, then there's rocks and boulders and you had to get through all of it. So I'd like to name a few of those just to recount to you and also for people to hear, because it made me begin to realize that living dialectically, grieving dialectically is just something that's really unbelievably skillful and helpful, even though it's yeah. really actually hard to do. So mm-hmm. here's, here were some of the things you brought up last time that I'm tried to narrow them down a little bit because it was like, I don't want to redo the whole podcast. <laughs> I, a, after he died within the first hour and you were with Brian up in the bathroom, just the two of you alone, and you said, I can't do this. I can't, I can't. And then you said at the same time, you realized, and I'm still here. I am doing this. I can't do this, and I am doing this. Another one, I don't need a seminar to get through grieving, and it helps me a lot that I'm so well trained about trauma. Uh, I am, uh, and by the way, each of these, if you didn't resolve it by finding something in the middle, you could get quite stuck. Um, I, um, I'm uh, suffering is much less if I accept suffering. Uh, functioning feels like it invalidates my suffering. And uh, functioning is necessary and helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, avoidance is completely natural and adaptive. And too much avoidance will impair me. Mm-hmm. Right? Safety signals are helpful, and they can cripple us. Uh, it should not be up to the bereaved person to shape their social network by telling them what to do, and it's incredibly helpful if you can tell the social network what to do. And I and there's about uh, that's about one fifth of the number of those. It's just unbelievable. Like every boom, 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 boom. And I wonder if you could comment more because you've used the term dialectical many times. Some people listening to this podcast are probably experts about what that means, and others probably aren't so sure what you're talking about. I wonder if you could say more about the dialectical challenges.
2: Yeah, yeah, Thank you, Charlie for that highlight reel. Um, you're absolutely right, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know, grief, in my experience and and recovering from loss has been the most dialectical experience like of my life. And I've leaned hard on dialectics because like you say, Charlie, you can get so stuck or polarized on one side or the other. Um, And it just gives you that like room to sort of breathe and recognize the truth in both sides, Hmm. two things that feel like they are contradictory or at odds. In fact, there's a truth about both of them. There's a kernel of truth in both and a more kind of a synthesis approach is, is, the, is the path forward. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a specific dialectic just that's come up for us recently in the last month that really kind of speaks to this. It's the dialectic of, of rituals um, and, and honoring your person over time and how that also changes. Like on the one hand, We do lots of this in DBT. On the one hand, rituals are very helpful for grievers to sort of give ideas or structure for how to get through a tough day or a tough moment. I'm thinking specifically of anniversaries, birthdays, right? Like some families might have, you know, on on my person's birthday who died every year, we're going to make their favorite lasagna. And that's one way that we honor them and know what to do on that day, right? Like that's so helpful. And we have leaned a lot on deciding what rituals work for our family to sort of like have an annual tradition of some kind. And at the same time, you know, we're five years in now, I am just starting to notice the ways in which rituals could mm, sort of make you feel a little bit trapped. Like, what does it mean if this ritual no longer serves me, or I no longer have the bandwidth, or I want to do something different, or I want to step it down. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean I don't love my person anymore? I'm not spending effort on that person anymore. You could get really stuck in that and Mm. and, in having to like adhere to a ritual that you thought would always serve you, but no longer does. Um, And it's helpful to have something like an idea. So I think dialectical planning around what to do on those hard days has been enormous. And that's, that was what September was for me last month was figuring out, well, what do I want to keep? What do we want to change? And how can I observe that non-judgmentally and not attribute that to like how much I love my son or how much I miss my son, but Mm. just shift because grief evolves. So it makes sense that rituals evolve and taking care of two young children, I can no longer bake 36 cookies for the firefighters down the street in the way that I did when I didn't have children living in my home, right? And so now, uh, by the way, that was a kindness act we used to do on, the anniversary of the death because of the wonderful firefighters that showed up as first responders. So I, I, I let that one go this year. I didn't do it. And at first it felt bad, but then I reminded myself it is okay. It is okay. Another thing we've done in the past is buy a birthday cake for a stranger on Jackson's birthday. We just like go to the bakery and, and cover the tab and put a little Jackson kindness card, Uh, which has felt really meaningful. In fact, one family who was a recipient of that somehow found us and emailed Brian, just letting them know how touched they were. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing to do and maybe I will do it again in the future, but this year instead I asked Owen what he wanted to do. And he said he wanted to eat the birthday cake. So we made our own birthday cake and that's okay too. So just speaking back to dialectics, Charlie, thank you for kind of highlighting how important dialectics are to keep us flexible and not stuck on right. either side of that. And it gives us that freedom to sort of move sort of like that skillful dancer, kind of that wise mind, like what makes sense for me this day? And it doesn't have to be what I did last time. And it doesn't have to be what I do next time. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that
0: that cognitive flexibility um, that, dancer like capacity to be fluid and move with and evolve with your circumstances and yourself as as things change um is is really speaks so clearly to to your great capacity and i think also non judgment because being able to hold the tension of opposites um is one thing but also to to kind of include yourself and the full spectrum of your emotional experience, of your thoughts, and just allow them to be as they are without, you know, you talk about making meaning and you use that really skillfully in a directed way. And you also seem to allow multiple meanings to be there without attaching to any one of them. So I wonder if you talk about that a little bit, just, I guess, making meaning deliberately and then not making meaning and not judging. Um, if you ever think about it in those terms.
2: Yeah. I mean, making meaning deliberately for me looks like these very intentional acts of like, you know, again, making the kindness project, planning the Jackson walk, figuring out, you know, very concrete things that are going to like facilitate our healing or connect us with other people. And then, you know, yeah. Can you say more about the second part?
0: Yeah. Non-judgment, really allowing yourself to have the thoughts that, you know, yeah. Yeah. Would a good mom do this? And just not grabbing onto them, letting all of those things be there
2: and not directing. The one that, that comes up for me, I think I mentioned this actually in our, in our last one, the one that was recorded was this (laughs) idea that I've talked to about with the other SUDC mom that I'm, that I'm friends with, you know, we're both, doing okay. And it's been helpful to be in relationship with each other. Literally her son died just a few months before mine died. So we really went through, not that there's prescribed stages, but we went through this as far as a timeline, very like side-by-side. And it's been helpful because I see her and I don't have judgments about the fact that she's doing okay. And she sees me and she doesn't have judgments about the fact that I'm doing okay. But we both admitted to each other. Sometimes I feel bad. Like, what does it mean that I'm okay? Like, what kind of mother? I mean, doesn't a good mother like not recover from, that? you know? So there's there's this judgment there, but interestingly, she's also a psychologist. We've been able to kind of use each other as like, and I think that's a really helpful strategy sometimes yeah. when we struggle with being non-judgmental with ourselves. It's that like exercise of would I judge someone else in a similar situation, yeah. and so we can do that easily with each other. Um, yeah. But if somebody who's listening to this doesn't have that person it is just even hypothetically, like, would I judge another person in this situation? And we often are less judgmental with other people than we are of ourselves. And that's, Mm. that's how I shift in relationship to those thoughts that are like less helpful. Um, I just notice them as a part of grief, as a part of being socialized in this society, as a part of being human. Um, and, and, you know, I sort of then have to decide what I'm going to to run with versus kind of gently release, and and that's hard to do. I don't want to make that sound easy, but
0: gentleness is though is the quality I get from you. There's a real like spacious gentleness and willingness to allow yourself to have the experience you're having while also making decisions about the experience you want to have.
1: Exactly.
0: I feel like that's yeah. the yeah, that's the clarity. Yeah.
1: Guys, I I I have an announcement. Public service announcement? <laughs> Public announcement. Public service announcement. I made the executive decision heading into this podcast to invite a visitor uh, to come. And uh, so to the two of you, it's a surprise visitor. And, uh, and, and, it, and I'm sorry if it seems disruptive because we're having a great conversation. But I think it'll expand the conversation. So I'm gonna invite a visitor. I is sort of knocking at the door right now. She's gonna come in.
0: Hello. Hi. Hi.
3: I was in the neighborhood.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that puts it perfectly. So for those of you listening and and um and I told them, Beth, that that I made this decision to invite you in at this point, as disruptive as it may feel in the middle of a conversation, is that this is Beth McCrave who some of you have heard about uh, in parts of this po- podcast and, if, and the last one especially and uh, and also from your own podcasts. This is Beth's a person who lost her son at age 24 to suicide and 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 had the courage and, and a lot of the same sensibilities that Natalia has about coping with grief. And the two of them managed to connect with each other over time. And I just thought it'd be so cool if you, and also Beth is a teacher of DBT skills uh, for some time as a family connections leader. So I just thought it's just the perfect person to join the party here. Um, So thank you for coming Beth, in spite of the fact that I kind of uh, cajoled you into this. (laughs)
3: That's okay. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Because I have a feeling that you're not really by nature, a party crasher. You know.
2: <laughs> well, it's just another wild Friday night here, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Beth,
2: it's so nice to see you. We've emailed back and forth several times, and, and most recently this week. It's so, so lovely to see your face. Hi. You too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'll just tell you where we were at um, in the conversation. that we were just talking about uh, di- the, be- how important being dialectical is, and being flexible, and not getting caught being unstuck on one side or the other of various polarities when you're grieving, and so that's where we were at. And uh, and I thought we still have a fair amount of time here to talk about uh, skills, uh, about DBT skills in in help with grieving, and, and uh, which I think you could you know you can either jump in or you can just join in as we go along. And uh, and also, you know, we're going to talk some about um, how what how you deal with getting attached to things that are associated Mm. with your lost family member. Um, So I just thought, you know, can I just uh, anyway, I just I I, I'm not a I'm not a great host in this way of knowing how exactly to help (laughs) you join in, but I'm trying and
0: um, it'll work. It
3: will work. It'll
1: it's work. already
0: working. <laughs> it's worked. It's worked. It's
1: so good. <laughs> <Fun>. <laughs> it's done. good. Okay. So I wonder, you know, we've talked some about, uh, I think Natalia has brought up a fair number of times, Wise Mind has talked a ton about acting opposite your avoidance, especially acting opposite your urge to avoid mm-hmm. things with an approach lifestyle. She's talked to uh, last time elegantly, the last time, the one that was recorded. Um, about radical acceptance and what a key role radical acceptance plays. I thought actually it was a beautiful teaching of radical acceptance. I mean, I've listened to myself a couple more times because I think you really got at the core of it and why it's essential even for acting opposites to actually almost as a prerequisite uh, to accept that reality is what it is. And you've mentioned some other skills as we've gone along, but I wonder if you, and then also if Beth can join in about other kinds of skills that you've found important in helping yeah. you with the grieving process.
2: Yeah, in fact, you know something that happened last week um, really comes to mind with regards to DBT skills. Um, last week was the first night that my seven month old Mateo uh, slept through the night. So you can just kind of imagine what that might bring up, um, and we've done this before with Owen. You know, that was a while ago, but um, I can't remember now if this was on the episode we recorded or not. But something I had shared with with at least Charlie and Nicole is that with Owen we had a monitor that we used, It was. it's called an Owlet, And again, I'm, I'm not a paid spokesperson of the Owlet. I'm, I, I'm just sharing my experience about this, but the Owlet monitor measures vital signs during episodes of sleep. And so that was something that we used with Owen to kind of ease our anxiety. Um, however, uh, back to what you were sharing, Charlie, about sort of the dialectics of safety cues and safety signals, I was very aware that I was not gonna get to send my kid off into the world as an adult wearing an outlet sock. Like at some point we were not gonna be able to use the outlet sock anymore. So I was going to have to accept this as like a temporary baby step, so to speak, in getting comfortable with the idea that my children need to sleep and I'm not gonna be able to monitor that all the time. So we did use it with Owen. I would wake up in the night, look over and see the reassuring green light. You know, it comes with a green light, so you know all is well. And that would allow me to go back to sleep. Um, there were false alarms sometimes, which was really, really stressful. Um, and that is one of the reasons that sometimes we don't recommend this kind of monitoring device is that it can cause more anxiety than it can um, protect from. Um, but for us as parent, SUDC parents, and a lot of parents I know similarly have found some comfort in this. With Mateo, however, we have opted not to use the monitor. And one of the big reasons for that is I'm far enough out from this loss now that I've had enough exposure to my child waking up in the morning that I think I have let go of some of this fear, though it still is a little bit there. And what I wanted to do was to stop always associating every nap. I mean, these babies have many naps in the day, right? Every nap, every sleep episode, putting on the sock is just a reminder to me of sudc and i'm ready to not think about that every single time that i put my kid to sleep so also this is not a life-saving device it's not been proven to actually make a difference in that way so i felt really ready to stop using it and shed that safety behavior so this was in essence the first time a child of mine slept through the night and i don't have a sock on them so i experienced this literally just days ago and when i woke up in the morning my heart just about dropped out of my body um, or my stomach just about dropped out of my body. I felt immense fear. I thought to myself, it's happening again. And I had to essentially do check the facts on that. And I turned to Brian and he said, well, do you want to go check on him? And I said, you know, no, I don't. And, And, and had I gone and decided, yes, I think that also would have been totally fine. That's not the wrong answer. There's no right or wrong answer here, but for me, it was important that I recognize that for an eight month old baby, that is right around the time they start sleeping through the night. That is totally appropriate for his age. That makes sense. He went from waking up three times to two times to one time, probably this is a thing to celebrate. He slept through the night. And so I somehow resisted the urge to go check on him immediately. Right. And, and just sat with that uncertainty. I also, this might sound strange, but I also sat with the uncertainty. If something did happen, there's nothing I can even do about it now, right? But I just let myself, I'm not gonna go interrupt his sleep to like check, right? That's gonna be disruptive for him. Um, and so I waited until he woke up and he woke up happy. And that was a really powerful example for me of opposite action to fear, um, and check the facts, right? The most likely explanation is that he's an eight month old who learned to sleep through the night. And that's exactly what it ended up being.
0: That's just another moment that I would love. You don't mind just to zoom in on, you know, really, really closely and, if you, if you're able just to, like, what goes on in your mind when you're talking about sitting with uncertainty and sitting with the urge to check, mm-hmm. um, you know, what is the internal dialogue, um, are you with the sensations in your body? Like what actually is happening?
2: Yeah, so the urge, right, the action urge is definitely to go check. So it's actively resisting that urge. I notice the fear response in my body, my heart racing, my hands a little bit tingly or sweaty. Um I notice that my mind is very preoccupied with assessing what's happening. It's 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 hard to distract myself out of it. Right. But the main reason I do it and again, it would have been fine to check. I don't think right. that's a catastrophic thing to do. That right. would be a very understandable thing to do. But for me, I understood deeply, or I understand deeply that that's a slippery slope. If I let myself check at what point do I stop checking? And I don't want to become somebody who's constantly checking. And you know, if I I try to think about like, what can I control versus what can't I control? And in, I can't be a hundred percent certain that my child is going to make it through the night. No parent actually can whether you've had SUDC or not, um, in your family. So I make sure he has a safe sleeping environment. Mm -hmm. I make sure to do things like when we drive in cars that he's properly installed in his car seat, you know, when he learns Mm -hmm. to ride a bike, he'll wear a helmet. Like you can do the things you can do to keep your Mm -hmm. children safe. And then beyond that, it's a little bit of tolerating uncertainty that like, Mm -hmm. there are things we can't control. And my attempt to control them all the way that like overboard control. Like if I sat there watching his chest rise and fall all night long, none of us would sleep. And so it's like an active decision to not fall into that slippery slope. So you're reminding your, as I'm just thinking yeah. about listeners
0: who might be working with tolerating urges of their own. And you know, so you're reminding yourself of that slippery slope or your desire to kind of create a future where you're not as attached. Those are some of the things that that you're right. that you're thinking of or you're just kind of noticing, observing right. and describing exactly.
2: yeah, like i'm 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 thinking to myself, if I let myself check now at six ten am. What's going to stop me from checking at 5 a.m What's going to stop me Got checking it. at 4 am yes no, that's, that's and
1: really so helpful. it's
2: it's like holding up you know what I want for a my life yeah. yeah and and being wary of, of falling into that um, and the more that's I really do helpful. this path right the yeah. easier it is you know and that's and really the,
1: helpful and as everyone on this screen knows that that but other people listening might not know is that when when you use that skill of check the facts, and you have a strong feeling like fear or something else. And then you check the facts and think, is, is my fear justified by these facts? And then, you, and, and, and then if it is justified by the facts, uh, then you go fix the facts, right. then you solve the problem. Right. So if there was a problem, but the complicated thing that you're in there is you're in the land of uncertainty. Like you, you don't know if there's a problem. Your mind has generated a problem, but there's no other evidence it's a problem. That's why you're lucky to have a Brian next to you and say, what, you know, what do you think? And because then it, you get outside your own mind and say, wait a minute, let me check the facts. Should I get up? And, and this was a complicated one because you don't have facts to check in that respect. What you have is the absence of any evidence that there's a problem. So what you're saying is you don't wanna get in a habit of starting to solve a problem when there's no evidence that there's a problem.
2: There's not only no evidence there's a problem, there's evidence that he's eight months old, which is a perfectly normal developmental time for him to start sleeping through the night. So there was that piece, right? That's right. Um, But yeah, it's it's exactly that. It's exactly that. and. and I wanna say one thing about what you said, Charlie, because you said that it's not justified. The fear is not justified. Sometimes when I explain this to people, people get tripped up with this. So you're absolutely right. It is not justified given the facts. And what we mean by justified, right. we mean it doesn't fit the facts of a very low probability event that there's no sign it's actually occurring. Right. However, it is understandable Right. Given my history to have fear, yeah. um, right. so something can be completely understandable given your past, given your learning oh, right. history, given your whatever, um, and still not fit the facts, and that's been the one to kind of yeah. grapple with. Yeah,
1: I'm I'm thinking about in Beth in your situation, having been there sometimes with you when you were trying to figure out what to do with your son Ross when he was at home, and 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 there was sort of like it wasn't a question of go do i go wake him up it was a question of do i go see him do i go tell him to do something do i try to get him out of his room do i try to get him active cuz you're worried about him and it's a very hard skill to apply at that point cuz how do you check the facts of that you know do the chat, do the facts justify going to solve a problem cuz the problem is there it's obviously there And i, I wonder how you relate to this conversation and whether it does connect with your experience of Ross
3: yeah I think um in a couple ways it it, the first thing I thought of actually was Teddy because um now you know now I have this this you know more of this awareness that something can happen that and so uh Teddy told me last year that he was going to he and Mariah were going to drive cross-country and um, I had, and I, you know, I, in the winter, and so I had this, this moment of um, big moment of fear thinking, oh my God, like, I can't, I can't, I cannot survive if something happens to Teddy. And that's such a big, you know, that's a big deal. And so I thought about that and I, you know, I could have just bought him a plane ticket and said, you know, no, don't, you know, we'll buy you a plane tickets, just go this way instead. But, you know, but I, I then I thought about it and I thought I um, it's a really cool experience to drive cars, to drive across country. I did it and I you know and it's fun to have that adventure and I wanted him to have that as well. So um, I didn't say and you know obviously I said be careful but I didn't I didn't say anything about not doing it because I just didn't think that was the um, it was not what I wanted for him and I don't want him to be um, thinking that I'm fearful all the time about, things that he might do because I want him to have adventures too you know
1: yeah that would that's another dialectical dilemma because it would be understandable if you decided no I'm going to convince him not to go right because I want to feel more secure and uh it makes complete sense to support him going because he's a young person having an adventure so it's kind of like how do you navigate because you could have erred on either side by getting rigid about right. it. And sort of like, uh, but then you have to tolerate, I think there's another DBT skill there is, which is the, to observe your emotions as they come and go like a wave and realize that's part of living skillfully is that you're going to have the peaking of a wave of anxiety at that point. And it's going to rise and it's going to fall and it's going to rise and it's going to fall, but you don't want to live your life based on emotion mind. Right. And, and
3: there were also facts too, that I, and I know he's a good driver. I know he's competent and level-headed. And so I had that, that helps you know, that as well. Um, but that's the first thing that came to mind actually. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So if we x-rayed your mind Beth, at that moment, were you, how accessible were, were all of these thoughts in that moment was your first reaction worry, or were you able to kind of bring in this degree of reasoning and awareness?
3: Um, I think my first, my first reaction was just this. I think I actually, I I had, I was, I had seen you somewhere around that time. And I actually mentioned that to you, Charlie, because it, um, you know, he had told me, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, they were leaving in November, which is also winter, and he said, we're, you know, we're gonna drive all the way to California from here, and uh, so my first reaction was fear, I really, just like a spike of fear, because I thought, oh, that's such a bad idea, and then I, I was pretty, just had a lot of feelings of, I absolutely cannot survive if something happens to him, like that's just not a thing, <laughs> so that was my second kind of thought, and then after that, I guess. I I just said I can't. I thought actually pretty soon after that I thought I can't I can't live that way. Like I just can't yeah. live that way because I like adventure too. And you know we've done a lot of stuff, a lot of yeah. things. And I want him to. I really want him to be able to have that and not be burdened mm-hmm. also with my anxiety about something that could potentially happen to him. And I also realized after that that it's not in my control. <laughs> like it's not something in my control. Yeah. It's, that's an illusion, I think. So yeah.
1: I wonder if we can turn the conversation to this other topic about because I, I think each of you, Natalia and Beth, have talked about the issue of when you get attached to the things that were the things of your kid. In each of your case, your family, your loved family member, like and now the things live on, and the person is gone. And how how does the relationship evolve between yourself and their things? And what kind of things does that bring up? And what kind of challenge is that? And I wonder, uh, and I know Beth, you've you've shared uh, an example. I think. I forget if you shared it when you we were talking with us or whether it was on by emails or it was in response to Natalia's conversation but I wonder if you could start by saying um, you know what what have you been attached to that were Ross's things and what have you done about it
3: um yeah that's hard um I think I, in the beginning it's different now but in the beginning I was even I was even like thinking worried about like oh my God what will happen with like, when like his toothpaste and shampoo and stuff is gone like that was that was horrifying to me t- t- to think about that and then that kind of went away and um recently and so I, and I did get rid of some stuff but I kept a lot of stuff and um because we have a big house a big this big old house and it's got all kinds of room in it and so that but now we're moving and so in recent um the past, recent weeks uh, I have to clean out the house and I had left his room pretty much like it was I especially particularly his books his books were really his most prized possession and it's also something that we shared and so that was um really hard and so uh I had to do it anyways so um I don't know I mean of all the things that was th- that's the thing that really bothered me the most. So so anyway, I just um a few weeks ago I decided it was time to start that and and so um I I know this isn't recommended at all but I got a very large glass of wine and I brought, and I know that's not a good idea and I realized that afterwards and I did that a couple of times and then i stopped but it i just i was really dragging myself in there and so anyway i did drag myself in and started to do it and it did um in fact uh get a little bit easier but i did it in um sort of pieces because i just it was weighing me wearing me down i felt like it was just really wearing me down and so i couldn't do it all at once and it, I thought that just wasn't a good idea. So I gave up after a little while and then, then I would go back to it and do it a little bit at a time. And it was, there were a lot of them, but I wanted to do it carefully. I felt like I didn't want to do it quickly. That was also really important. And I wasn't entirely sure what to do with them. And that was another you know piece. So anyway, finally, I um, I, may, I found a place for most of them and um, there's still some left, I kept some, um, and I, yeah, anyway, so I'll bring those to the new house and keep those, um, but initially, you know, my first thought was I'll just like transport it exactly the way it is into the new house, and I will have it that way forever, and I still have actually doubts about that, why, but I didn't do it, So um, mm. so mm. that was the hardest piece, but it's done now. And uh,
0: mm. I think
3: I think overall, there were just so many things in the house that, that cumulatively, it started to add up over the course of many weeks, I was doing this. And every closet I went into, I would find something from school. He was very prolific. He, he used to write and draw a lot. So I'd find stuff all over the place. And it was just, it felt endless and it felt pretty overwhelming. And so I think by the time I got to the bookcase, it was just... I was just pretty done so anyway, most of it's done now and um, but in the along the way there I did find the dinosaur and that was um, and I had found that several weeks ago and I just didn't throw it away and it was one thing I kept and it was just sitting there on the desk just kind of looking at me and so um, <laughs> uh, then when I heard when I heard um, Natalia's podcast I, when she t- said Owen oh, loved dinosaurs, I re- caught my attention because Ross was obsessed with dinosaurs at that age, just absolutely obsessed. And so I thought, well, that might be a possibility. And so that's when I, I wrote and thought maybe he would like it. So that was a happy thing, actually. That was a very, there he is. oh my God, yes.
1: yes. Oh, if, if any of you are, wa- whoever's watching, because <laughs> oh. mo- most people just listen to this <laughs> and you don't get to see this, that Natalia right now is holding up the dinosaur. <laughs> that Beth Beth sent her the dinosaur that was Ross's dinosaur to give to Owen. Yeah, right? but
3: he's huge and he's very indestructible. <laughs> and they probably don't make him like that anymore, I imagine. So anyway, <laughs> um, I was really happy, wow. really happy when you said that he could have it. And uh I'm sure it's just like I'm sure it costs more to ship him than it was <laughs> to even, than the dinosaur, <laughs> but it just it didn't matter that, you know, it just didn't matter. So I'm
2: happy, really happy that he has that place. And we appreciate it so much, Beth. First of all, I just want to say like everything you just shared resonates so, so deeply with my experience, even though uh, Jackson was only two, um, you know, it's not 20 something years of belongings. That's a whole other next level. Um, But I similarly, like in the beginning, you know, it was about kind of these like unexpected reactions to like the toothpaste, like you're saying about the toothpaste or the odd things for me, it was going through the room initially um, and, and just finding these like plastic flimsy toys underneath the dresser. And it's just like, how did this survive? And my son did it. How is this sturdier than my son? You know? Um, and, and, you know, it took a long time. What you're talking about, just, it was such a slow process. Every little new thing brings this like fresh pang of grief and unexpected feelings, unexpected findings. One time I was flipping through some um, photos and things that we kept like in a box in his sh- on a shelf uh, in his closet. And I found the paper slip that they sent home from daycare of like what they eat, what the, you know they use the bathroom, the notes. And the first one on the top was September 19th, 2017, his oh. last day. And at oh. the time that I filed that away, he was alive. That was that day that I put it there. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that was his last day of his life. And oh. so looking back on that, you know, oh my God, he ate a medium snack. You know, he used the bathroom four times. Like, what does that mean? Like, like it just, it was so yes, it is a hard task because you just don't even know what kind of roller coaster you're about to set off on um, when you go through these belongings. And, and luckily for us, initially, it was really a matter of boxing things up to just get it out of the way we were making room for a baby. So moving out toddler things, but I stored it all. I actually didn't get rid of a single thing except the sheet on which he died. I threw that away. I kept everything else because at least for us, there was like a utility of, we're gonna hopefully have more children. We'll get to reuse this. But then it was the second process after boxing it all away. Like you said, almost just like transplant, like just moving it. Then it was pulling it back out and deciding, well, what now, you know, two, a year later, whatever, what now am I going to start to slowly kind of part with? And at that part, it was getting rid of some things, but keeping most of it and deciding what of this, am I going to preserve as just his versus I'm going to allow my other son, Owen, and now Matteo um, to use, and it was this total push pull. Like I don't know if this resonates at all for you, but it was like we had this lovey, the little blanket, a little stuffed animal um, that was like that was like the one thing nobody was allowed to touch. I had it on the mantle with by the urn, just like rests on top, or it used to rest on top. Nobody was allowed to touch that lovey because that was Jackson's it smells like him. It was the only thing left that had his scent. And I just lived in fear of when that scent would dissipate and leave. Cause I knew that that scent wouldn't last forever. Mm. And now it's one of Owen's favorite toys to play with. So there was a day that came that I said, you know what? Like I want Owen to like, or not, I want Owen to play with it. He expressed interest in it and I let him play with it. And now, you know what? It smells like Owen and that's okay. And there's something kind of beautiful. And like the keeping that lovey loved you know um it's almost kind of evoking like toy story ideas of like letting the the toys get played with um and it would have again been a fine decision i think had i wanted to keep that forever as just jackson's and put it in a box and you know i think that's also fine but for me it shifted and then it was like how can i share this right and and now i mean that's what makes me that's what i think about with this dinosaur right like this dinosaur might have just collected dust and it would have been a fine decision for you to hang on to it as a remembrance of of ross's you know youth and toddlerhood and just how incredibly meaningful it is to to share it with us i feel so connected to you and to ross through this Owen adores it. It's already been named Bronto (laughs) and it got introduced to the whole dinosaur crew. (laughs) Owen also can say all the scientific names he could have gone head to head with Ross, I'm sure (laughs) with all those names. And it's just this like really beautiful connection that this dinosaur kind of gets to live on and keep our families connected in this way. So I just think that that's ultimately where I've landed with this. I also have not gotten rid of all of Jackson's things. But once Mateo passes two years old, that's gonna be my task, right? Like what of this do I permanently keep? What of this do I shed? Um, knowing I can change my mind about things I keep at any time if I decide later to get rid of them with more time. But the, the shedding of things, like I think about who's like a, a worthy recipient, someone who will enjoy this and that makes it easier. And so thank you for letting us be the worthy recipient of Bronto, and I would love to read the poem if it's okay with you, Beth, that you shared. Is that yeah, okay? uh, Emily, Emily Dickinson? It's not, but yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. Uh, my mother, who's staying with us, her reaction was, "She's a poet." That's what she said. When she read it. <laughs> so it says, uh, "Dear Owen, I hope you love this dino. He's been hiding from the light, stuck in the back of a closet for so many days and nights." It's time for him to come out and play. We know you can find a way. He loves it in the bathtub and he's fine on the rug. If one day you feel sad, try to have no fear. He will listen to all your feelings if you whisper in his ear. This dino had a friend like you lots of years ago. All our hearts are happy now that he has a place to go. Love, Beth, Ross, Teddy and Ted.